I was raised to be obedient and submissive. Um, I didn't own my own body. My family owned it. My father owned it. And it was all about upholding the family honor. And shame was a trap that was everywhere. Okay, it basically comes down to this. You have to forget everything your culture has told you about being a woman. And then you can begin your day. Hi, I'm Jill Sorensen, and you are listening to the new feminist podcast, The Place for Common Sense Feminism. I am so excited about today's guest. I've followed her work for a number of years, and she is fierce and fearless. New York Times bestselling author and women's rights activist Ayan Hershey Ali grew up in Somalia. She was raised to be obedient and submissive in a culture with honor violence and female genital mutilation. She fled a forced marriage and received asylum in Holland, only to later notice that the misogyny and cruelty toward women she had just escaped was rising in Europe. In her new book, Prey, she argues that the previous decade's migration crisis imperils hard-won rights of European women. With in-depth research and statistics, she uncovers a sexual assault and harassment crisis in Europe that she says is turning the clock on women's rights much further back than the Me Too movement is advancing it. So as a young girl in Sweden, I was raised with progressive gender equality with the first feminist government in the world. I was taught to have a career, be financially independent, play sports, and that I was in charge of my own life and destiny. So that Western women can understand the different realities. Can you share a bit about how you were raised? Well, it was quite the opposite. Um, I was born in Somalia, Mogadishu, Somalia in 1969. And I was uh, raised in places like Saudi Arabia and Ethiopia and Kenya, and it was the exact opposite. I was raised to be obedient and submissive. Um, I didn't own my own body. My family owned it. My father owned it. And it was all about upholding the family honor. And shame was a trap that was everywhere. And uh, it, there was uh, there were no plans at all for the kind of autonomy that you were raised, um, you know, the, the upbringing that you talk about. Uh, mm -hmm. I did play sports in school, but of course, as soon as I uh, got close to puberty, my mother said uh, that was the end of it. She wouldn't have me wear sports clothes like shorts and a t-shirt uh, in order to compete in I, I i i wanted to do the um the runs and so she she was against that um mm -hmm. and then when i was 22 years old and very lucky in my case but for most girls it was when they were 15 or 16 years old but my father was away uh, but when i was 22 years old then i was married off to a man that my father chose for me and he oh. then after that i was going to be his property that's exactly how it works in uh, in that part of the world where i come from so the exact opposite of what you yeah. experienced in sweden wow so the last 15 years we've seen huge immigration to europe from the middle east and north africa and an overwhelming majority of that being young men from countries where women 
are not regarded as, as equals. So in your book, you have an incredible amount of research, interviews and statistics linking a large increase of violence and sexual violence against women in Europe to this wave of immigration. Can you share the development you're seeing? I saw a development and I think it was gradual and we're still seeing it. Uh, men who come from uh, the parts of the world where I grew up in and uh, even broader, South Asia, the Middle East, uh, different parts of Africa, when they come to Europe and these are young men, they bring with them their attitudes towards women, among other things. And mm -hmm. women where they come from are divided into good women and bad women. And good women are the ones who live within the strict honor code. I call that the modesty doctrine. And they are submissive, they're obedient, they stay in their houses, they cover themselves and so on. When they come to places like Sweden, the women they see on the streets who are independent, exactly how you were raised, you wear what you want, you move around in, pub in the public space as you please. And for them, I think that's an incredible culture shock. And we see all these women that don't, they don't fit into what they think of as good women. And, and then they, some of them, not all of them, but some of these men then engage in violence and sexual misconduct against women. And unfortunately, um, this is, let's think of it as an unintended negative consequence of immigration. And this has been going on for, so, for a while. In, in different countries. And I think it's, it's pretty bad in Sweden at the moment. Um, but people have been uh, trying to, to talk it up, to hide it, to pretend it will just go away. It's not going away. No, I, I know. I'm, I'm living in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's not a joke. I mean, it really is unfortunate. It's unfortunate to be living in Sweden in the year 2021 and with the background that you described, the way you were raised, and have to really worry about what is going to happen to you once you leave your front door as a woman, only because you're a woman. Yeah, yeah. So there seem to be two different realities that's happening. One for Swedish women or, or European women, and then one for immigrant women here in Europe. Can you share about this? I know you write about it in your book. I would say if you are an immigrant woman uh, living in a household where the men of your family have this attitude that you should, you don't own your own body, you don't own your life, uh, you are a commodity and you're forced to cover yourself, you're removed from school, you're forced into marriage and you have no freedom of movement because your family decides what that means. Um, this is something we've been seeing not only in Sweden, but again in many, many European countries. And the immigrant women, mostly Muslim women, they were left alone, excluded from the law to suffer within those households. And all of that was simply disregarded as that is their culture. And it didn't, the, the attitudes of these men uh, for a long time did not, or at least did not visibly have any effect on European women, women like you. And now that's changing. And, uh, and, and my analysis of this is 
we ignored what was happening to the immigrant women. And now it's happening to all women. And I wonder how long we can ignore this. You're, you're so right about this. This is, um, we've been excusing and saying, oh, it's just their culture. We let them have their culture, but it, it's, it's, it's abuse against women. It's abuse against women. It's, it's exactly right. Um, we, we allowed it, we, we allowed things to happen in European countries that work against the laws of these countries, forcing individuals into marriage. Uh, this phenomenon of child marriage. If you're a child, you're not entering into marriage, you're forced into it. It's against the law in every European country, but we allowed it to happen and, yes, excused it as it's their culture. One day they'll emerge out of it and they'll be enlightened. That's not what happened. What happened is we got more and more men from countries with this uh, uh, this type of negative attitude towards women, and now these men are behaving towards all women in a negative way, and we're still excusing it. Yeah. So it's not that long ago when even women in Europe were second-class citizens. For example, my grandma, grandmother in Denmark, she was not even allowed to vote. Yet, um, as you mentioned in your book, Western women, we take our rights for, and gender equality for granted. And why is this so dangerous? This is in my book, the subtitle, you will find the word erosion. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's dangerous because, first of all, when you look at your grandmother's generation, the women who didn't have uh, the, the kinds of rights and freedoms that you enjoy now in the 21st century, those women had to fight for it. They had to fight tooth and nail. They had to fight within their families, within their communities. They had to fight their governments to get the laws changed, to allow women to go to higher education, to allow women to vote, to allow women to work and keep their pay, to open a bank account. They had to fight for all of these things. And then the women, maybe your mother's generation and your generation and beyond, the women who inherited all of these freedoms took them for granted. And now when those freedoms are threatened, by men who come from parts of the world where women were not granted these rights and freedoms, um, we, we don't seem to, to understand what we are losing. Right. And there's no, there's no fighting for it. And, uh, you know, feminism, these words, is a euphemism for leftism and wokeism and uh, pro-Palestinian politics and uh, veganism and all sorts of nonsense. Feminism is not, the feminism of the 21st century is not the kind of feminism that your grandmother fought for or was a part of. And that's mm -hmm. unfortunate. And that is, I think, where you see the erosion. It's not like these rights and freedoms are taken away very suddenly, as in, you know, the story that's told in The Handmaid's Tale. It's, mm -hmm. it's very gradual. You are seeing you, this violence, sexual violence against women in the public space in Europe has led a lot of women to think twice before they go into the public space. They cover themselves. They think about what they're going to wear. They think about whether they're going to go with an individual to protect them or not. They are behaving, their coping mechanisms, their survival mechanisms is very much similar to 
that of immigrant women or women in the countries where women don't have rights. This episode is brought to you by Dexcom. Don't let diabetes get in your way. With Dexcom, you'll spend more time feeling good because you'll spend more time in range. And don't you want to feel better more often? Of course you do. Listen, it's not all about A1Cs anymore. Time spent in range is the time spent with glucose levels in a healthy range. Dexcom is a small, discreet wearable device that continuously monitors your levels and sends glucose readings to your phone every five minutes. There are even arrows on the app that show you where you're heading and how fast, so you can make adjustments. The best part about wearing a Dexcom G6 device is just that. You're wearing it. No more finger-sticking or scanning, which makes it much easier to keep your glucose in range for longer. The more time you spend in range, the better you feel. So don't wait. Learn more about the Dexcom G6 device at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G6 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. This episode is brought to you by Onnit. You have goals to become stronger, healthier, and more mindful. And the best way to start is with you. And that's why you use Onnit's Alpha Brain. It's a dietary supplement that helps support cognitive functions like memory, mental speed, and focus. Available in capsules, powder, or a ready-to-drink shot, Alpha Brain comes in various forms, so you're always ready to achieve your flow state. And for something more premium, on its Alpha Brain Black Label features a refined formula that supports attention span, learning, and long-term memory. It also helps you achieve a state of relaxed alertness that lets you zero in on tasks without feeling jittery. A little better every day with Onnit. Go to onnit.com today and enter code SPOTIFY to save cash and find your flow state. Yeah, yeah. So in your book, you also mentioned that immigrant women warning of abuses by men in migrant neighborhoods are silenced. And that, quote, there is an unwillingness of European women you have interviewed. They are uncomfortable to share about the origin of the perpetrators. Why is this happening? And how do well-meaning Europeans accidentally become protectors of perpetrators? Protectors of misogyny and people who excuse misogyny. Um, right. The, the women I spoke to, all of them, uh, made it very clear to me, either they were apolitical, they didn't really engage in, in politics at all, they just wanted to get on with their lives and they wanted to see uh, their environment be safe for women. Or they said, you know, I vote on the left um, and mostly for social democratic parties. I am not against immigrants or immigration. I feel sorry for what's happening to the people of Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq and Somalia and all of these people. But this is what's happening in my neighborhood. I no longer feel safe. Um, uh, they describe in, in very um, vivid detail the obscenities that are hurled at them as they leave their house to take their children to the daycare center or to go to work or to jog. Many of them actually have given up this whole uh, idea of jogging outside. And when they go and talk to, because that's how you do things in Europe, you talk to your councillor, to your mayor, to the local politician, to law enforcement, these women are told, basically they're told to shut up. Uh, shut up and put up. Uh, because to to take their complaints seriously would be, they are told to engage in xenophobia and to engage in anti-immigration uh, attitudes. 
And it's not. You don't have to be anti-immigrant. You don't have to be xenophobic to say life is changing around here. Misogyny. These men are misogynistic, raping women, harassing them, groping them and chasing them out of the public space. That's misogyny right there. There's no need to excuse it. And I think people, we women should, just like the women of your grandmother's time, we should really stand up now and say, this is intolerable, it's unacceptable, and it has to stop. Absolutely. Cannot agree with you more. It's, it doesn't fit, uh, you know, we've been raised a certain way to see things a certain way and to um, help people. And now it's actually hurting a lot of women. So it, there, it's changing. It's changing a lot in Sweden. Uh, how women think. And I, I think people are starting to speak out about it more now. And I hope that so what much. happens, I hope what comes out of this is a coalition of immigrant women and let's say working class women, all the women who are affected now uh, by this type of misogyny. And I think together those two groups of women can come out hand in hand. There's no need to accuse them of racism or anti-immigrant uh, sentiment and say this behavior towards women is unacceptable and hold their politicians, their media people, their academic leaders, hold them accountable. Yeah, I a lot of the immigrant women in Sweden who work with honor violence, etc., were the ones starting to speak out about this. And I was noticing kind of a silencing of their voices. Like and and the fact is we all have to, as you said, work together yeah. and stop yeah. this and speak up. Absolutely. So here in my hometown in Sweden, a local Islamic organization is building a large mosque, um, actually next to my old high school. And they have invited Salafist imams who have preached, this is on YouTube, that a husband has the right to beat his wife if she's disobedient. She can't leave the home without permission of her husband. And the main duty of a woman is to allow her husband his sexual right. Now, this is clearly stated violence against women. Yeah. So why are European governments allowing religious freedom to supersede gender equality laws when at least in, in Sweden, I know, according to our laws, they legally cannot? This is what I don't understand. I think what European governments and European political leaders are trying to do is they're trying to balance the notion of freedom of religion and to a certain degree freedom of speech and expression with the acceptance of, of Islam. They want to say, look, you can build your mosque, you can you can practice your religion. And then and here's I think where European leaders then fail once they're acquainted with exactly what's being preached, in this case clear misogyny uh, in the name of religion, then these European leaders they hide. Yeah. And they seem to run away from exactly what true leadership would mean, which is to say, okay, all things considered, yes, you can practice your religion, but we're not going to allow any kind of misogyny. And if you preach that, we will close that mosque. Because this is exactly what these imams are saying. Some of the European leaders, and actually even in Australia, they talked to some of these imams about the sexual misconduct that some of these immigrant men are displaying. And the imams would say, well, in that case, the women need to cover up. They need to stay at home. Alcohol should not be sold. In other words, the misconduct 
the violence against the women will stop if the women stop being free and human. And so whether you convert to Islam or you don't, if you behave like a Muslim woman and you sit at home and you cover yourself, then you're not going to be attacked. But if you get out of your house dressed as a European woman going about your business, you will be attacked. That's basically what they're saying. And that's what they're preaching. And that's what the political leaders are allowing them to do. And when the women who, are, who have become victims of this violence, when they speak out, they, the women, are accused of xenophobia and racism and anti-immigrant sentiments. It's the world upside down. Topsy-turvy, it has to stop. It has to stop. This imam, uh, one of the imams was even caught on a, on a, a tape here where a woman who was abused, she was crying and said her husband abused her. What should she do? And he said, you should go home to him and apologize. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that doesn't uh, that should be an uproar. It should be an uproar. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that doesn't surprise me. That's how I was raised. <sighs> it incenses me. Yes, I know. And it drives, it drives me mad. It drives every woman mad. It should drive every woman mad. But I think we then, for a while, a lot of European women thought, well, if I just move out of this neighborhood and go to a different neighborhood, the problem will stop. And maybe it will stop for that individual woman, but it, it didn't stop for all women. And the more we get young men coming from these parts of the world, the, the, the higher the incidence of violence against women. And I think now we're at a place where we can't hide anymore. We can't keep moving uh, to, you know, safer neighborhoods and safer um, mm. uh, suburban areas and into the countryside. Now I really think we have to have a serious reckoning with this problem. And it has to come from women. Yeah, it's starting here in my hometown. There are a lot of op-eds being written that we need to stick up for our gender equality and that our gender equality should come for all, include all women. It's it, It'll be very interesting what happens the next five to ten years. Yeah, I hope so. so yeah. <laughs> so in the end of your book, you say, women's safety from predatory men is the issue around which all true feminists must rally and coalesce. We women can and must refuse to be relegated as we have been in the past, as I have been in my own lifetime, to the status of prey. And I agree 100%. So what are activities that we can do to enforce this? We as women. I think first we have to present a united front. Um, for a long time, I think women like you um, did not think of these violations uh, of women's rights perpetrated by immigrant men. I think we're going to go back with where we started this morning, which was we excused it. We thought it was their culture and it would go away or it would stay limited to people within those cultures, women within those cultures. And I think the first thing is for all of us to come out, immigrant women, local women, progressive women, rich women, poor women, <laughs> and take a stand against this and a consequence of that will be then we're going to have to engage with globalization the topic of immigration uh, we have to select immigrants on whether they're willing to absorb the 
norms and values of the host countries that they come to. And it's a very important value to recognize the equality between men and women. And if men refuse to to behave in a dignified way towards women and, and respect women's dignity, their bodies, their bodily integrity, their safety, their, if they refuse to do that, I don't think they should be allowed into the country. And I think they should be removed from the country. I think there should be consequences. And I think women can demand that. Yeah. But I think it's more than that. It's also education. I have two little boys and I have to raise them. It's my responsibility to raise them to understand and respect girls and women's rights. And so it is, it's the education system. It's all the institutions of socialization. They have to be used to educate these young men in understanding um, the value uh, of individual freedom and women's rights. And again, for those who refuse to do that, for the parents who refuse to do that, for the imams in these mosques who preach this type of misogyny, there should be consequences. Yeah. For an imam to stand in a mosque and preach that husbands can beat their wives, he's basically inciting violence, domestic violence. Yes. That sort of should not be tolerated. No. No, it's, it's, it's shocking when you think of it. That's why it needs to come out in the open. But Ayan, I cannot thank you enough. If I had you more time, I would ask you 2,000 questions. <laughs> I think your book, every, I'm going to ask that anyone who listens to this, particularly who lives in Europe, go out and buy a copy of Pray and then buy 10 more copies and give 10 of your friends. <laughs> because it, it need, it's a conversation that is so important and it needs to be had. And I really hope we can get you to come back on, on the New Feminist Podcast again. Yeah, I, I would love to come. And I was I was actually going to be physically in Sweden, but because of the pandemic, uh, I couldn't come. But uh, thank you very, very much, Jill. I think it's very generous of you to say that. But I, I wrote this book with the intention of starting this conversation. And I hope I hope that we can have this conversation in a rational way. Don't have this conversation with an anti-immigrant sentiment it is, I think, pro-immigrant to address the issue of misogyny and stop it. Yeah, this is not a political question. It's a woman's safety question. It is a common sense feminism question. It's about violence against women. Absolutely. So yes. I think everyone needs to work together. But Absolutely. thank you so much for this amazing book and, and for coming on. And um, we're going to carry on the conversation. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. If you like this episode, make sure to share it with your friends. For info and links on our guests, go to our website, thenewfeminist.net, and make sure to subscribe. We always love to hear from you. If you have someone you think we should speak to, let us know. And make sure to follow on Instagram at thenewfeministofficial. We'll be back in two weeks with a new podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Jill Sorensen. Thanks for listening. Our producers are Sienna Jackson and Jill Sorensen. Our executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Rafelson. Our editor is Lucy Baker Swinburne. Original music by Richard Baskin. Until our next episode, thank you for listening. You've been listening to The New Feminist, brought to you by Electrocast Media. 
Electric Cast. Electric Cast. 